Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Wednesday, December the 11th, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today, a divine trinity of Irish Times political journalists in the shape of Pat Lee, Fia Kelly and Jennifer Bray. And a little later, we'll be hearing their thoughts on the final lap of the UK general election. But first, matters closer to home. The last week has seen a kind of a changed atmosphere around this government and this doll and a new re- or renewed expectation that it is not long for this world. Fiuk, you were writing about the numbers and the inside thoughts on, within Fine Gael on this at the weekend. Yeah, we start with the numbers first, I suppose, because that's what dictates everything. The vote last week on the confidence motion on Owen Murphy was won by the government by a margin of 56-53, allowing for Fianna Fáil abstentions. Um, if we take... That was Dara Murphy's last spectacular act before he resigned in honour uh, to, to the last Keown quarter. So we take the 56 number for the government, we take Dara Murphy off that, that gives you 55, 55, 53. We then add back in Simon Coveney and Michael Fitzmaurice, who were paired. Pairing is an arrangement whereby a minister's away in state duty in opposition to the absence themselves to compensate Simon Coveney was in Israel and Palestine. So Michael Fitzmaurice didn't get, we're then back at 56, 54. Then you move on a bit. Thomas Pringle, another opposition TD from Donegal, Independence for Change TD, was in Berlin receiving a prize, no less, last week and missed a vote. That is 56-55. And then you bring in the redoubtable John McGuinness, who, with exquisite timing as always, announced after the motion last week that were there to be another motion, he would not abstain and he would vote against his party whip, which is to abstain, and he would vote against the government. So that brings you to a dead heat of 56-56. And... That is if the government keeps the support of the three independents it had last week, Michael Larry, Dennis Nocton and Noel Grealish. In that situation, the Count Corley would have to vote and the Count Corley, we would assume, would vote with the government. That, that is custom and practice, isn't yeah. it? The yeah, there would be an outrage. It is, except with one caveat, that the Count Corley is, tends to vote with the government but will not, will not create a majority where one does not exist. Is but in a fifty protocol. in a fifty six fifty six situation in an actual my, tie, my expectation is that he would vote with the government in that instance mm. if there's a confidence vote, but would not continue to do so if the government was dependent on his yeah. vote for survival. So now, a couple of things there. So that's fifty six fifty six. So the government might survive by VAR. Uh, they might you know get the count court, dig them out of a hole. So, um, but then. It can't be a motion of no confidence in Owen Murphy because there was one last week that can't be known for six months. The last motion of no confidence in Simon Harris was last February, so he is now seen as the next one up. Bear in mind, hospital problems will be the perennial post-Christmas political issue. Uh, there is the alternative that they could put down a motion in the government itself, which to my recollection hasn't been done in, in quite a while. I think it may have been done around the Francis Fitzgerald Controversy. It was certainly threatened at that stage. Threatened. But um, was there subsequently one, possibly in the spring after yeah. that? But we haven't had one haven't certainly had one in, in the last yeah, six, six months. So two options. And therefore, are, yeah. one is now. So one slight question about that uh, as to whether 
Um, so typically, if uh, an opposition party puts down a motion of no confidence in its private members' time, the government would uh, trump that, essentially, by putting down a motion of confidence in itself and such a motion immediately goes to the top of the doll order paper and is taken uh, immediately after it is put down. But the government, if it wanted to hang on, would not necessarily be obliged to do that. So they could force the opposition to await its private members' time. So we would have to look at and who's that, scheduled to do private members' time. What effect time. would that have? Would just push, it, could, push it, it out it, by it, a few It days. could delay it depending on which opposition party wished to put down a motion of no confidence in the government. Uh, private members' time between the opposition parties goes on a, on a rota. So whoever wished to put it down would have to wait until their next slot. On the Fianna Fáil were told by their party leader on a number of times, occasions last week, that his view of the natural end point to this arrangement is Easter. April 12th to Easter Sunday is their position they will stick by it so you, they're not going to put down a motion so the view is that either Labour or Sinn Féin will move uh, a motion of no confidence sometime next year a couple of issues with that when you take into consideration that the next motion to go down probably spells the end of this government's life Sinn Féin will want the Northern institutions back up and running they will want Stormont restored before they go to the country in the south because that will be a big issue that they will, hit, they will be hit across the head with in a general election here if the Northern institutions aren't, aren't back up and running. The deadline for that is January the 13th. So that's something that has to play itself out. And then there is the issue of whether the Labour Party moves first. Does it want to be seen to be you know, a, a real party of, of, of opposition now? But then there's also the question of does anybody want to do that before Brexit as a fact takes effect? If Boris Johnson wins a majority this week, you know, he will... Brexit should happen on January 31st. Does anybody want to be seen to be doing that? Now, the chatter in Fine Gael at the moment is this doll is doing nothing except giving the government a slap in the face and a kick in the bum every week. So what is the point in the Taoiseach going in before every week when it, it can the government can achieve nothing productive in there? So the, the kind of, there's this debate going on internally in Fine Gael at the moment. And as we said in this podcast before, the only debate that matters is going on, the one that's gone on in the Taoiseach's head about does he bring the doll back after Christmas or not? And we might come to that. But just to, just to continue in the weeds of this for a little bit, because I think the numbers and the dates are important. I mean, should there be a motion from Labour or, or, or Sinn Féin, Jen, uh, on the issue of Simon Harris and health, for example. That'll be after the Christmas recess. Mm. So that is when, when is when does the doll return? It comes back somewhere towards mid to late January. Um, so realistically, if you're looking at a February election, for example, at the end of February, you'd need that almost immediately after coming back. So... I mean, there's two things here. Obviously, the first thing Fiek mentioned is Brexit. We didn't get this far in this administration um, only for Brexit. And that's been made very, very clear. So no one's going to give up the game right before things become properly apparent. And that's, I think that's um, pretty certain. And the second thing is, you know, events, dear boy, anything could happen when we come back. Um, and, you know, there's no accounting for for the unknowns, I suppose. Um, and But at the end of the day, like you said, it is a numbers game. They lost this uh, vote of, well, they won it, sorry, they won it by uh, three votes, but that's seven less than the previous uh, motion um, just before that. So, and like Fiek outlined, the numbers are only going in one direction. It's not the right direction. And um, it's. I think it's very clear that the government is 
on life support? I think, yeah, with regard to the numbers, I was very much of the view after and just taking the, looking at the numbers and taking the temperature around the place, around Leinster House last week in the wake of that, both in the run up to it, interestingly, and in the wake of that vote, was that, you know, it's it's over now for this government. If there's another motion of, of, of confidence uh, in the new year, they will topple. But I've talked to a few people uh, in, in, in all parties since since then and I've been having a slight rethink about it. And I think you must ask yourself, do the do do the parties, principally Fianna Fáil, but also the independents that would trigger, those crucial independents, when do they want an election to be? So do they want to have a February election? Or do they want to have an election in April or May. And I, I, I think there's at least an arguable case that they will want an election in uh, l- later on than, uh, than, than the February or May. Now, you would say, well, why would Fianna Fáil want, given the last two February elections, be disastrous for the incumbent government, you know, coming after a health crisis in emergency units in hospital in January, which we can predict confidently will be the case. Wouldn't the main opposition party want an election in February? You say yes, but only if they think that staying longer in government offers Varadkar and his ministers a ladder to climb back out of unpopularity. And I'm not sure that's what Fianna Fáil actually thinks. It seems to me that certainly a chunk of people in Fianna Fáil believe that the longer these guys are in there, the better for us. The worse it looks. And certainly that's been the experience over the last... Can I, forgive me if I'm being obtuse, but I don't quite understand... It's not in the gift of Fianna Fáil no. in that Fianna Fáil will abstain because that's even if the confidence and supply motion is technically not in place anymore because Brexit has happened, they can still abstain because they've been doing that for years. Mm. But it's still down to the probably but the three the, 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 the dynamic of last week was that the Fianna Fáil element has been removed. That whatever Fianna Fáil do now, it's kind of irrelevant because they can abstain and the numbers, if one of those independents peels off, are gone for the government. So Fianna Fáil's abstention is no longer the determining factor of whether this government survives or not. Now, um, they may want an election, but if they are to abstain and hold to their word, it, it doesn't matter anymore. And previously, it's kind of in this situation where, you know, we've talked in this podcast before about when the Taoiseach will go for election. He wanted to, did he want to. At that point, the calling of an election and the power to remain in office was his. It's not anymore. That he is, doesn't have that, the power that, to call. He doesn't true. have the power... To remain, but bear bear in mind that if uh, Boris Johnson wins the election tomorrow, has a majority to get his withdrawal uh, bill through House Commons, he leaves on the UK leaves on thirty first. So at that thirty first January, and at that point, the confidence and supply agreement is uh, is over. So Fianna Fáil can justifiably say at that stage. Hold on, guys, we're out here. We did what we said we'd do. And part of this, while Michal Martin has consistently maintained he is acting in the national interest, it's certainly a very strong argument to sustain that. He is also acting in, he believes, in Fianna Fáil's interests by demonstrating to the public that the party can once again, the National Party of Government, as once was, can again be trusted to act in the national interest. But that period is at an end on the 31st of January if the UK leaves. But- now, 
what he will not want above all things, I think, is to seek to sustain the government but be trumped by the independents. Mm. So if the vote is going to go down, if the independents are going to abandon Fine Gael-led government, mm. then I cannot see Micheál Martin abstaining in that vote. But I wonder, will the independents vote for that Because election? they would all be happy to... to, to, to to leave this if government. If an election is coming Sorry. anyway and everybody to, agrees. To, then leave, to leave this government dangling for a while because, mm. um, as Pat says, uh, Jen, uh, Fianna Fáil might be quite happy to see Fine Gael continuing in the mm. vein that it's been continuing in for, for the last few weeks. Yeah. And the other part yeah. of this, apart from all these numbers, is just a sense of entropy, ennui, decay that this this government is like Monty Par- Python's parrot. It has ceased to be, essentially. Well, I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, yeah, th- th- that is true. And I think um, it's interesting now. You've heard it here first in the Irish Times Politics podcast, day one of the election, February 1st, 2020. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, there is that sense. I mean, the, the, the government remaining in place, that's a numbers game. Getting back into power, that's an issues game. And, and what they've experienced over the last number of months has been overwhelmingly negative by the kind of brief glow they had on Brexit. They had the Bailey issue, which was, to my mind, the start of when things started going really wrong. Um, that did have an impact in the local elections. Um, most politicians in Fine Gael admitted that. That was the first big issue this year, um, aside from the housing crisis, which is, you know, every month, all month. Um, and then we had the three Murphys, you know, we had Dara Murphy, Rona Murphy and, and Owen Murphy, uh, given the issue with the no confidence vote. And you know, none of those things have covered the party in, in glory in, in any sense. I mean, look at the topics they cover. Insurance, immigration, housing and uh, politicians' expenses. All hot topics, all areas in which they've been damaged. And you could see Fianna Fáil strategists looking at that and going, it's not going to get any better. Let's hold this thing out for as long as we can, inflict the maximum damage, spend that time building up our grassroots campaign, spend that time getting... More MEPs, more well, like they did this year, MEPs, extra TDs and by-elections, which they did very, very well in. Um, and, you know, build up the party while Fine Gael tears itself apart. Well, what are they thinking about this inside Fine Gael, Fiuk? It depends who you talk to. Look, there is, a, like as I said, there is a kind of a, a debate within Fine Gael going on at the moment as to whether you bring the doll back, whether you wait to get that motion put down against you or whether you, you know, seize the initiative yourself. It doesn't matter what the debate in Fine Gael is. It matters what the one person who can control these events is thinking. And, you know, he's not going to let that be known to anybody apart from one or two other people around him. There is this chatter. OK, right, let's say the difficulty with call, calling a preemptive January election is that Brexit as a fact hasn't happened. You know, Brexit as a fact has to happen on February 31st. Two arguments. So one, uh, you have to let it happen to, you know, there may be unintended consequences all over into a transition period, which nothing changes, etc. Et the other is that you, what is his greatest strength? What has been the government's greatest calling card since he took over in 2017? Every spike in the poll corresponded with a good Brexit period. December 2017 spike, the spike in the satisfaction rating in the Irish Times poll a number of months ago, which coincided with the deal with Boris Johnson. Would it be the worst thing for him coming into the final stretch of a campaign to have Brexit actually happen a week from polling day or a week Mm. and a half from polling day? And you could say, we're through it now. I'm the guy who got you through it. Now, he would be, you would risk charges of extreme cynicism and playing with the national interest. But, you know, he's looking at that and saying, could have, I'm not saying it could it's, it's, it's justifiable, it's justifiable on its terms so he comes back say 15, 16 January 
he says. And by that point, let us assume, let us pile another assumption on top of that and say that Boris Johnson has won his majority, that it is very clear that Brexit will happen on the 31st of January. And Tisha comes back and he says, this doll we can all see has run its course. I thank my uh, esteemed opponent, Michal Martin, for, uh, for his forbearance. But now we have reached the end and we will have an election on... The 14th of February. and uh, He, he could make a after. strong argument, couldn't he? That I mean, just looking at this government and now... And he's in the, control he, of events he, when yes, he does well, that. Well, indeed. And even looking at the stuff that's going on at the moment, the things he's, you know, he's supposed, this government is supposedly trying to do, they're all gestural because none of them are going to come to fruition no. in the remaining lifetime of this government, which is relatively short. And, anyway. and, 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 so it's and, just and kind the, of showing The political off, system is starting to pick irritating. up the, you know, as always happens, as happened for a while, but it's really people who are on the inside... Are saying that the civil service, you know, the officials, it's just ground to an absolute halt now. Nothing is happening. Nothing is getting done because people see an, an election is is coming round the corner. Now there is one caveat to all what happened last week. What we're talking about this week, I said there's more than one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> is that this is the pre-Christmas period when everybody is knackered mentally, physically, out on their feet. It's always a time when. People are afraid, you know, people are annoyed with each other. You see it in the doll yesterday, people are snippy with each other. You know, people will think, will reflect over Christmas and might come back with different opinions. So, for example, I at least know one of those independents who voted with the government last week was sending signals to Fine Gael saying, that was your last shot. Don't expect my support anytime again. But will that individual reflect on it over Christmas and have a different view? That intelligence gets back, fed back up through the Fine Gael hierarchy. They're aware of it. They know, they've been told. Does not change after Christmas. You can. I, 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 I think Vic is onto something there, and I think, and this is on the basis of the rethink that I'll be having. Will independents actually vote for an election in the middle of February? They have to weigh it up. The way that the difficulty. On a no confidence motion, do you, do you, or would they say, "Let's everybody wait"? Or do until you like now? Apparently, the word was that a couple of them were getting a bit of flack in their constituencies last week. But do you weigh up that? whether you can determine the timing of an election or whether you want to be seen supporting a government that's on its last legs. What political benefit is there to you? And, you know, kind of Fianna Fáil, Rural TD had an interesting take on it last week. They said, yeah, OK, housing is a difficult issue in urban areas mostly. Health is an issue everywhere. So if you're a rural independent, you can kind of explain your way away out of supporting the government on an Owen Murphy motion. Can you explain your way out of a Simon Harris motion? And... Meanwhile, the doll goes on. Uh, is anything that happens there in any way meaningful? I mean, there is a, you know, Sinn Féin has a motion on freezing rents across the mm. country. It's kind of an interesting kind of a proposal. Yeah. Uh, we know because of the last three years or so that even if it passes, it's not going to actually have any effect because that's the way this doll works, isn't it? Well, pretty much. I mean, I think that's a fair point. And if you look at that Sinn Féin attempt to introduce a rent freeze I mean, you could. there's a couple of ways of looking at it, but one thing that did strike me was that Fianna Fáil are kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth a little bit on this. They're saying on one hand, it was only a couple of weeks ago, Michael Martin stood up on the doll and said to, to Leo Varadkar, um, when are you going to in, implement a rent freeze? And um, basically the party had changed tack on that. And then yesterday we heard Dara O'Brien saying that they're not totally wedded to the idea. I mean, it's one or the other. You're either calling for it or you're not. And I think they need to be quite clear on that because I do think this will be a big issue in the general election campaign. Um, and even it, that, going back to your original point, there's a real lack of imagination right now in the doll when it comes specifically to this. It's just discounted that, oh, this will affect supply. 
But where are the analysis? Where are the studies? Where are mm. the, you know, the, the actual getting stuck into an issue? There's and some looking suggestion there might be constitutional issues around it, as there always yeah, are. Yeah, but these are just suggestions. So it's, it's, oh, there's a constitutional yep. issue, will adapt supply. I mean, they should look at other countries and examine how they've done it. They should look at Berlin, maybe watch how that goes for six months. Oh, you know, four states in the US have done it. Um, the Netherlands have done it. Spain have done it. Um, all to varying success. And it just seems to me that it's all so paltry. It's so flimsy politically. Sinn Féin say they want this. They don't think it's going to go anywhere. Government talk about a money message. Fianna Fáil say a little bit of both and nothing ever happens. You know, and there's a real lack of imagination there. You were talking in your column on Saturday, Pat, also about, you made a reference to the fact that obviously housing is one of the issues uh, and it will be an issue at the election. But that perhaps within Fine Gael, you know, 70% of people in the country are property owners in one way or another and probably among Fine Gael voters, that's probably a considerably higher percentage. They don't mind seeing the value of their houses go up a bit. They don't mind if they are either accidental or deliberate landlords seeing rents rocketing. Um, there is a, there may be a silent majority of self-interested uh, bastards out there probably who um, who uh, who really don't care about well, this uh, stuff, even yeah, though they may pay lip service to well, it. Some people that I spoke to in, in Fine Gael were certainly suggesting this, that you needed to look at the... Uh, that you needed to look at the, the, the issue across the electorate rather than with the sort of hyper-intensive focus that happens during a dull debate and is focused particularly on, you know, the people living in emergency accommodation, which is a small number relative to the population at large. And the point they're making to me is that, you know, in, in the political debate and the media debate over... Uh, overestimates the actual extent of that problem on an electoral basis. So they're not saying, you know, that this isn't a, a significant social problem. They're saying is that electorally it will not be as uh, damaging as lots of people but seem we to But it doesn't come as a surprise to know that the people who are living in emergency accommodation and in hotels are unlikely to be Fine Gael voters. And indeed, their relatives are probably relatively unlikely to be Fine Gael voters as well. But there is some kind of element, surely, of a moral imperative. And it is far higher numbers than we've ever seen in this country before. Plus the fact that the housing issue itself isn't just about people living in emergency accommodation. It's about people who can't get to yeah, rent a place they, and are still stuck with their <coughs> mothers and yeah, fathers who may be Voters, well, indeed. So, yeah. To chat to a couple of people in Fine Gael last week about this, they accept, yeah, look, you know, the homelessness crisis isn't, you know, affecting our voters, but they say that is not an excuse for us to wash our hands of it. They say our voters aren't directly affected by that, but they do have a conscience and they don't like this becoming an issue in our society today. So there's an awareness that their immediate self-interest is not a play but their view of what the country should be and their values do are influenced by what they see on, you know, emergency accommodation, kids in emergency accommodation, that issue. So they're not saying that it doesn't affect us in any way at all because our voters don't, you know, aren't at the sharp edge of it. They say our voters care. It doesn't matter that they, they aren't at the sharp edge of it, but they do care about it as an issue. Um, this is the third best country in the world to live in. What's anybody giving off about, Pat? Well... <laughs> Uh, well, that was the Taoiseach's position yesterday in the Dole. Yeah, well, he, 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 he was referencing the UN Human Development uh, Index. And of course, uh, this has been amongst the best places in the world to live in um, for some time. 
now. I, I suppose one might ask a question of whether it's getting better or Especially worse. for an Irish Times podcast listener, of course it is. Uh, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I think what the, the, and the Taoiseach was suggesting, and we were veering into another issue now, but what he was suggesting was, you know, he was awaiting the prime time special on uh, on how Ireland was uh, was a great place to uh, to live. I think a you know all governments that are nearing the end of their term of office, they do enter into this sort of mental space where they feel it's outrageous that the media and the public and the opposition are not giving them credit for uh, the many great things that they have done. Now, I don't think Leo Varadkar was actually suggesting to RTE, and this, by the way, on the day that he gave them an extra 10 million euros a year, I think he was actually suggesting to them that the prime time convene an editorial meeting to discuss the urgent making of this programme. But at the same time, you, you have to think that he, he, he probably wouldn't object if there was a bit, more, uh, a, a bit more focus on it. Anyway, I mean, objectively, these things are true. This is what the UN Human Development Index found. It is very clear that... There are that living standards, life expect, uh, life expectancy, educational attainment, standards of living are vastly higher uh, on average in Ireland than they are in most uh, in most of the world. In the real world of politics, however, people have expectations about these things. They see the very real social problems. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, to, to cite the two celebrated examples of homelessness and in emergency departments of many hospitals. And they think that the government should be doing more about those things. Leo Varadkar said a couple of weeks ago in relation to the farmers, he said that the, you know, farmers have to realise there are things that the government can do and there are things that the government can't do. And one of the things that the government can't do is set the price of beef to, uh, to, to the advantage of farmers. But I think that a lot of voters think that the government can do and should do more about the health and homelessness issues. And I think that they will be cent- at the very centre of the election well, we debate. Are. We are hearing more of that now. You know, they're not getting enough credit, that, you know, pointing towards unemployment figures being historically low and the economy being in a good position, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. And we're hearing it more and more, more doorsteps. The media don't cover this. You never talk about the good side of the story, you know. It, it, of course it, they're going to say it that. It all comes across as, I mean, some of those things are definitely true, empirically speaking, but it all comes across as a bit querulous and put upon and it's not the Christmas. Yeah. It's, it's, late stage, it's late stage, second term government approaching a Christmas recess when everybody is tired, but it is late stage, second term government when the initial glow of a new leader, as this is two and a half years in, is really faded. You know, it is completely in, in line with what you would expect from a second-term government at this point in office. Well, then let me ask you all this. Let's turn our attention because there is going to be an election here in the next six months or so. Um, there is an election right now in the UK, a uh, very interesting election. We're in that kind of final maelstrom of the the last two days before the election itself takes place. There's an awful lot of stuff going on. I presume a lot of people in the political world here in Ireland, Jen, are looking across the water and wondering what lessons to learn from what they're seeing in the campaign. I'm sure they are. Um, I mean, it's the Conservatives in the, in the latest poll have lost the kind of, I wouldn't say commanding lead, but certainly quite a strong lead that they had in, uh, in, in the last polls compared to the one that came out yesterday. And, you know, if you look at the reasons why, it's been kind of a disastrous few days for Boris Johnson, actually. We had, obviously, that, that image of the, the uh, child on the floor in, in a hospital in Leeds. 
because um, there was no beds available. And then the fact that when he was shown this picture by a reporter, he wouldn't look at it. Instead, he took the phone and put it in his pocket. Um, and that is a bad image and that's a bad look to have in your last few days of your campaign. Um, and if you look even at the today being the last day of the, of the campaign, where Boris Johnson, where Jeremy Corbyn are going, um, Boris Johnson is targeting kind of um, basically people who are undecided, Jeremy Corbyn doing the same, but they're just taking different tacks. And I think that maybe in the last few days of, of the of the campaign, it's kind of swung more in Labour's favour. Now, we'll see what happens, obviously, when, when the results come out. But one big thing which came up over the last few days was this idea of misinformation uh, online. Uh, we had this story put out by some prominent journalists in the UK that uh, a Labour activist had punched uh, a Tory advisor. Now, obviously, that turned out to be totally untrue. The video came out and we see very clearly that the person involved was just putting his hand out and the advisor walked into it. But I think there are lessons to be learned. There's lessons for the media to be learned too. Even for ourselves going into a general election campaign, you're going to be spun. You're going to be told all kinds of things. You know, you're going to want to... It seems rudimentary, but I would have sympathy for the journalists in the UK who I think maybe were potentially stitched up by sources. So, you know, there's, there's well, lessons. if you get stitched up by sources, I mean, maybe these are cautionary tales for you guys as we go into this election now in the, in, mm. in, the, in the next few months. If you get stitched up by a source, do you not need to verify the story before you tweet it? Absolutely. You would do that if you were publishing it in a newspaper or broadcasting well, unless it on, you're two on a news bulletin because si- this is what happened with people like Laura Cunsberg at the BBC, mm. Robert Peston. Uh, they tweeted this allegation without it having been verified and as soon as the video came out, it was clear it hadn't happened. Yeah, because there is a pressure on all journalists to manically tweet at the speed of light everything that happens. From and whom? that precludes from their fellow journalists, from their competitors, from non-journalists who are tweeting, uh, who are tweeting things, from the parties, from, from everywhere. And it is a lesson to us. And I can assure you, Hugh, that we are watching closely the... Uh, conduct of the election in the United Kingdom and will distill the lessons to be learned from uh, uh, from it uh, immediately after Christmas to better serve our readers. Well, well, in, in order to aid you in your deliberations, I saw a comment on this issue, which I think, you know, you might be well to take on board, which is that that Laura Kunzberg, for example, uh, that there's a kind of there's a there's a failure to understand the way that that media operates now. And we all love the idea of breaking a story. And because of the immediacy of Twitter, for example, Twitter is seen as a place where you have to go to as soon as you hear something straight away because there is seen to be a value to the journalist and being the first person to break that story. But there's actually very little value in breaking a story on there's Twitter. Value, there's value, I guess, much to more the journalist. Value. There's much more value both for the journalist and particularly for their employer if it's somebody like the BBC or a reputable media organisation in being right rather than being first. Well, a former editor of uh, this newspaper used to say, get it uh, get it first, but first get it right, which I think is yeah easier e- easier said than done. I the mean, same standard should be applied to what you are willing to put in a website or in print as your t- your Twitter account, and I think that line sometimes gets forgotten that people do not treat their Twitter page much as they would IrishTimes.com, just to use our example, or the Irish Times paper or the BBC, mm-hmm. and that because you're you know if you're tweeting in a kind of like you know, everybody uses Twitter as kind of an offbeat type of way. But like, you know, you are tweeting it as a journalist with a reputation and an employer's reputation and you must take that seriously. And you never, must never put something sa- in a tweet. You must apply the same standards on a tweet as you do to what you would put on a printed page or on a website. Unless you're willing to have it put up on a large poster outside your mother's house, never put something in a tweet. Is what, mm. uh, wow, that's yeah. a good one. This isn't a, isn't a bad one. But 
the, the other part of this that, that seems to me, I, I may well be wrong about this. It, uh, ten years or so ago, it seemed that elections were constructed in such a way that most of them were won. Most of the argument was made in the first two or three weeks of a campaign or perhaps even before that. And it was a question of just locking down and establishing already set patterns in the last week or so. In this incredibly febrile, digitally driven, misinformation driven atmosphere that we have now, there seems to be a lot more potentially up for grabs in the last three or four days of an election, uh, perhaps, than there used to be previously. Perhaps that's because now, like you talk about things being so much more immediate, things being online. um, And, you know, if you look at some of the claims made by all the different parties in the UK, whether it's in relation to how many hospitals they're going to build or whether it's in relation to how many nurses they're going to they're going to hire, there's. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on this, I'm, uh, maybe I am, but there seems to be a far greater immediate fact-checking of those things and proving that a lot of those promises are wrong. And I think that makes things just so much more immediate um, and can bring you into the final days of, of a campaign. So, look, maybe, maybe it's it's that, but that's my take. I think um, one of the reasons why there's a lot of late deciders in the UK election is that there's such a widespread lack of enthusiasm for either of the alternatives to be Prime Minister and I think that a lot of people who vote will be holding their noses one way or another. But even here elections have I think have been growing more towards widespread late decision um in uh, than than previously so uh you know polling from the last election would tend to suggest that a large proportion of voters tend to make up their mind you know in the last week and a, a chunk of them in the last 28 or 20, 24 or mm. 48 hours. It's kind of part of a broader social change, isn't it? People make last minute dot com decisions more than they used to because they're used to that because technology allows yeah, them to do it's that. It's also due to the decline in traditional political loyalties. So, you know, for much of the period in, you know, the, the history of the independent state, Fianna Fáil could rely on getting 40% plus in a general election. Fine Gael could apply, rely on getting uh, 30% plus. Labour could rely on getting 10% or so. And, you know, what remained was uh, was what was fought over uh, over the course of uh, an election. <clears throat> Whereas now the reflexive loyalty to party brands is much lower. That's not something that's unique to Ireland. In fact, it has come later to Ireland, but it has come quickly. One last thought on this. The other thing that seems really important or seems to be more important than it used to be, although we've always had them, is gaffes, you know, classic political gaffes, the mistakes that people make and then the impacts that those mistakes have. So Jennifer referred to the incident with Boris Johnson and the, the picture of the of the little boy on, on the mobile phone. And that obviously has a huge resonance because it taps into an already existing suspicion of what he really thinks about the National Health Service or what the Tories really think about about the National Health Service. But it seems to me that gaffes are more important these days because everything's photographed, everything's recorded, everything's filmed and it can be go up instantaneously and have and an impact. It can be shared widely and, you know, the yeah. nature of a gaff is that it's probably going to be funny or embarrassing or revealing. Uh, it's not going to be like a bog-standard manifesto launch about, you know, a policy and it will get shared and shared and shared and shared so in this age I think a gaff, you know a gaff, well being a curiosity of a campaign and an instance of a campaign has much more scope to be a defining issue in a campaign now than it would have been before because of the, the scope to really 
you know, for it to hit an audience of, 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 of millions. It's well nigh impossible for a political party, no matter how controlling and well organised it is, to completely keep control over all that stuff. Absolutely not. Sure, everything, things just go viral online yeah. and that's it. And, and like, the way they can be presented in different videos, I mean, it, it's it's a completely different way of campaigning and, and it's a different way of politics. And the criticism of the Boris Johnson thing was that he was trying too hard to keep control. By, you know, stick, sticking rigidly to his message, he was trying to keep control of it. But that was the fault there because he should have loosened up. He was literally taking back control by robbing your man's phone, I suppose, yeah, really. Yeah. Um, a, a, a last thought. You're going to be in Brussels, I think, on Friday. Pat, we, we've also be coming in. Will, is everybody going to be praying for uh, Boris Johnson victory over there? Do you know, I think <laughs> I think they will, notwithstanding their distaste for uh, for Mr. Johnson. I think what the EU wants out of this election, above anything, is certainty. I think most people in the EU now believe that the UK not just will, but should leave. I think if Boris Johnson wins a majority to deliver that, I think that would be the most favoured outcome. Deliver that in an orderly way, I think that would be the most favoured outcome for uh, the EU. The nightmare in Brussels. And as the, uh, as it happens, the, the timing on Thursday night when the BBC exit poll comes out at 10 o'clock, leaders will more than likely still, all EU leaders will still more than likely be at the summit dinner. Uh, we will be outside the uh, the summit dinner uh, watching things and trying to get some uh, sense of what's going on inside. So it certainly will be quite a dramatic Will they interrupt uh, the dinner, in do you reckon? Will they Brussels? wheel in a projector or something like that? <laughs> I, <laughs> would <be> <laughs> I, like, I would be surprised if they, uh, if they do not. Uh, traditionally, the... Um, the, the uh, prime ministers and heads of government are not supposed to bring in their phones or there's a box that they put their phones into so they can't be uh, tweeting and texting uh, uh, during, during the course of the summit and the dinner. But um, I don't know, maybe they might uh, maybe they might let them hang on to their phones well, for this particular... As Pat says, the, the exit polls are going to hit at 10pm uh, on Thursday evening and then the, the entire count, including in Northern Ireland, takes place overnight. So all the final results will be known by early the next morning and we'll be covering that for you on this podcast. But for the moment, thanks very much to Pat, to Fiac and to Jen. Thanks to our producers, Suzanne Brennan and Declan Conlon. And remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Acast or whatever podcast provider you prefer. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter where I do try to behave myself most of the time. Thanks very much for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.